0: Great to see all of you here. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and make your way to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where we're going to be at today. And this series that we've been going through, Praying the Bible, has been great for the last few weeks. But the entire year, our goal as a church is for us to go kind of deeper and further in our prayer lives. That was kind of our vision for 2023, that one word prayer. And it's been encouraging for me. And I just want to share a little bit with you about how God has been stirring in your hearts and in your lives through this this year of prayer in 2023. uh, Because sometimes you don't always get to hear all the life-changing stories that I do. And so just a few of them. um, One lady that's been coming to our church said, I didn't grow up in church at all. And so when I heard that we were doing a year of prayer, I'm like, pray to who? Like, I don't even know who I'm praying to or what that looks like to pray at all. And so God's been growing her life through this series as we've been praying the Bible. But also if you go all the way back to where we started the year, We looked at the Lord's Prayer, and it started our Father who art in heaven, and we talked about who our God is. We talked about it in several passages we looked at. In the Old Testament, we're going to see a little bit more, even in in, in clarity today, of the God in whom we pray to. So it's been encouraging to to see that. Uh, Another guy told me, he said, I used to hate praying in public, uh, honestly, because privately I didn't pray much, so I'd never want to pray in small group, I'd never want to pray around other people. But as we look at the Bible now and I start to kind of think through how I should pray and who I'm praying to, I've started to be able to pray publicly and uh, be able to pray in front of other people. And that's just a step of faith that somebody's taking to follow the Lord. And that's, that's amazing. We want to celebrate those steps of faith to be obedient to what God's calling them to. Another lady said that I've, uh, I've never fasted in my, my life and we talked about fasting earlier on in the year, and so she's now been fasting regularly each week and praying for the church, and which is you guys, and praying for us as leaders. So it's been really encouraging to see her take that step of faith. And I know there are many, many more steps of faith to faithfully pray to the Lord God Almighty. And so I just want to encourage you guys, church, God is moving. He's doing amazing things and even saving souls. The first hour we had somebody come to faith, and so we're just grateful for God and His saving work And what he does. And so praise God for that. Now we're going to look at Psalm 51 today. It's entitled A Prayer of Repentance. And uh, this is a very humbling prayer, a convicting prayer, but it's also meant to be an encouraging prayer in the Psalms. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century English preacher, said this about Psalm 51. He said, this psalm can be wept over and absorbed into the soul and then exhaled again in devotion. But he said, but preaching it, man, it's only to be attempted. He said, I can do nothing but blush and defeat as I think about preaching this psalm. I'm like, thanks for the encouragement, Spurgeon. Uh, We're going to try to unpack it today though. Um, And before we understand all the the verses we're going to read in Psalm 51, you got to understand the context of it. If you look in your Bible, at the very beginning in in 51, before there's a verse, you'll see a statement. This is giving you the context of what's happening for this prayer. And it says to the choir master, the psalm of David, so King David is the one who wrote it, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, if you've been with us for a little while, uh, we went through 1st and a little bit of 2nd Samuel, and we looked at the life of David in part and you'll know, very familiar, this, I'll remember the story. I remember what happened with Bathsheba, and I remember King David and who he was. If you haven't been here and you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. I hope this place feels like home for you. I hope you're encouraged by how we've been praying even for you this week as a, as a guest here with us. But I just kind of want to get us all on the same page, get the context of what's happening, and then we'll start to unpack Psalm 51. So if you haven't been here, David became the king, before he became a king, over Israel, God's people, he was running uh, from the prior king who's trying to take his life. And he meets these guys called his mighty men. It's kind of like a Robin Hood scene. They become good friends. They build this like, little uh, huddle of guys out in the wilderness, and they're doing life together and all of this. And then he eventually gets into power and becomes the king. And all these guys that were there with him out in the wilderness now are um, basically his staff and his council and his, his uh, generals and all of this. And so one of them uh, that becomes one of his leading mighty men is a guy named Uriah. And why that matters is David, instead of going out and fighting alongside of his men and defending the nation from this invasion that's been happening, he stays home. We don't know exactly why he stayed home. We talked about maybe some ideas of why in the, the series that we talked about or in the sermon we talked about a little while back. But David stays home, and while he's home... He's on the roof of his house, and he's walking around, he's looking around the city. Because he's the king, his palace is the highest, and he can look into windows of other houses and courtyards, and he can see other things. And he notices a very beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and he starts to covet this woman. So he calls, and he asks questions, figuring out who she is and what her story is, and finds out that this is actually Uriah, one of his trusted friends, one of his general's wife. And that covetous heart moves to a selfish, self-centered heart that gives into lust. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then he tries to cover up his tracks. He doesn't want anybody to know about it, and so he lies and he deceives and he tries to get, or he does get Uriah to come home. And he's like, hey, Uriah, just spend some time with your wife, you know, and and nobody will even know that this happened. I mean, she's going to have a kid, yeah, but he's going to look like me, but we're just not going to talk about that, right? And he tries to cover it up and that doesn't work. And so finally, he's just like, well, you know what? Let's put Uriah in the forefront of the battle, pull all of our troops back, and he'll die there. And so David kills a man. And David's sins have just been snowballing over and over again to the point where finally this prophet named Nathan, which is where Psalm 51 talks about this guy coming to talk to David. And he tells this illustration, this really simplified version of it, but what he says is, Hey, there's this really rich man that robbed and stole from a really poor man. And David gets mad and upset, and he's like, this should never happen. That rich man should die for what he has done, right? And then Nathan says, you're the guy. You're the guy that sinned and robbed from Uriah. You took his wife, and then you murdered him. You have all of the sin. And what David does after he hears this is he is cut to the core. That truth has plunged deep into his heart and into his soul. And with that conviction, he prays a prayer of repentance, which is what we're going to read right now. That's the context. This is the prayer. And I believe that this prayer has many implications for even you and me. So let's look in verse 1. This is what the word of the Lord says. David prays and says, have mercy on me, O God. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your holy spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness of God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Pray with me. Merciful Lord, we hear your word today and we confess that our hearts need your mercy. Help us this morning to exchange our sin and shame for your saving love. Our failures and faults for your faithfulness. We praise you for pursuing us in our sin and transgression, and we ask today that you would help us to understand through this prayer of David how we should pray prayers of repentance to you. Lord, would you give us clarity that we would live out your word in prayer this week. Now, in this time of quiet, I ask from your heart that you would just pray and ask God something like that, that God would speak to you and give you understanding to this passage today. Would you pray and ask Him to speak to you now? Would you pray also for me that as a sinner and we look at this prayer of sin that I would be able to to communicate it, that it would impact not just my life, but, but ours. That I would serve you well as I lift high the Lord. Would you pray for me? Lord, your word says that through confession and repentance, times of refreshment come. And so I ask today, Lord, that this will be a refreshing time for us. So, Lord, speak through weakness now to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. All right, this passage can kind of be broken up into two different parts, the the bad news and the good news, okay? So I'm going to give you the bad news first, so don't get up and leave. The good news is coming, and we desperately need the good news. But if we don't understand the bad news, then the good news will mean nothing to us, okay? So let's start understanding as we look at this prayer, the the word of God, the prayer of David, we need to first see that a prayer of repentance for sin is prayed. We find a prayer of repentance for sin. Now did you notice in uh, the first couple verses that David uses three different words to talk about our wickedness and our wrong against God? Three different words. We often only use one. We talk about sin, and it's a very blanket term. But David uses three. He says in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. And then in verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity is the second word. And then it says, cleanse me from my sin. That's the third word. Transgression, iniquity, sin. And all of them are used to describe the depths of our broken soul and broken heart. Every one of them highlights something a little bit different about our rebellion and treason against the King of the universe. This first word for transgression, right here, is a word that, that talks about you knowing what is right and wrong and choosing to do the wrong thing. You, you know, this is the command of God. I don't want to do that. This is wrong. I know that it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. And David says in here, he's transgressed. In verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions. How does he know his transgressions? Because he knows the word of God. He knows the truth of God. I fear for, for many of us in our culture, we don't even know our transgressions anymore because we're not spending time in God's word, allowing us to see where we're rebelling against our God and king. But David does, and he says, I have transgressions, and they're before me. Now, just a simple way to help you understand what transgressions is, I don't know why, this is just stuck in my brain, but I think transgressions and trespassing, okay? So I want you to think about like seeing a no trespassing sign. You see the sign, you know the command, no trespassing, I see it right in front of me, I'm going to trespass anyway, and you walk on past the sign that's above you. That's what David is talking about right here. I see God's word, it's a no trespassing sign, I'm, I shouldn't lie, shouldn't be committing adultery, I definitely shouldn't be murdering anybody, I see those, I'm going to hard pass on that and walk on through. That is what transgression looks like. But he doesn't just say transgression, he takes it to a, the next level and he talks about his iniquity. His iniquity, and this is a different thing. See, iniquity, what it is, is our, our leaning, our bend in our hearts and our flesh to do the wrong thing. Where transgression is like a, a crashing wave, we can think we knew the wrong command, or we knew the command, we did the wrong thing, the wave crashed on the shore. What iniquity is, is the undertow. It's that undercurrent that's, that's pulling you away to do what's wrong, and we just kind of lean into it, and it pulls us further and further and further away from God. That's what Iniquity is. David knows his heart and knows that he's, he, he would rather do the wrong than the right. And so he's saying, God, would you wash me thoroughly from this iniquity? And then if you look in verse 5, he even takes it to another depth of, of iniquity and sin and, and wrong and wickedness. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not talking about that David's mom committed some kind of fornication or adultery act. It's nothing like that. That's not what God's word is talking about. What David is highlighting is from birth. From birth, I had this iniquity, this, this desire to do what's wrong. Because we have this desire to do what's wrong, and we drift that way instead of doing what's right. And he's like, it's there from birth. When my mother conceived me, now there's that, that sin, that iniquity in my heart. And if any of you, any of you have kids, you know this to be true. Like, I, you don't have to teach your kids to lie. It just naturally happens. You got to teach them to tell the truth, right? I have never once um, had to tell my kids to stop being so generous. Stop giving all your toys away. Stop doing all that. Why? Because their first initial response is, it's mine. I don't want to share. I don't want to give any, anything away. We have to teach them generosity. Why? Why? Because of the iniquity that's in our hearts, where we don't pursue the right thing. We run away from God. This is what David is mentioning here in this prayer. I've got transgression. I've got iniquity. But what he also says here is, I've got sin. In verse 2, he says, cleanse me from sin. Sin is an archery term to talk about missing the mark. Missing the mark. God had this bullseye, and he says, this is how I want you to live. And he told Adam and Eve, you're going to live and enjoy the garden. You're going to enjoy this world that is made perfect and good. And this is how I want you to live. Just don't disobey these commands. And they missed the mark. They didn't hit the bullseye. They, they rebelled. And that's what sin is. Sin is missing the mark of where God called you and desires for you to be. And all of us have done it. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And David, as he's pouring out his heart in prayer, this is what he's remembering. God, I have transgressed against you. I knew what was wrong, and I did it anyway. I have this iniquity in my heart I need you to cleanse me from, because I'm always drifting towards that transgression. And Lord, I have sinned. I knew where you wanted me to be, and I have missed the mark. This is all the sin that he's praying and confessing before the Lord. And then look at verse 4 as he talks about his sin. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Which is a little bit of a head-scratcher. What are you talking about, David? Like, you, you certainly sinned against Uriah. You murdered the man. Of course, you've obviously sinned against Bathsheba. I mean, you committed adultery with her. You see, he, what David knows and as he prays his prayer is that the, the greatest act within our sin is the consequence we have as it separates us from God. See, the temptation for us, for many of us, is to think that the most serious consequence for our sin is the harm that it brings on somebody else. How our sin may harm our spouse. How our sin may may harm our our kids or our parents or even a friend. Or in our narcissistic culture where we are tempted to, to think of ourselves first and foremost, we think, Maybe the the worst consequence is what this sin will do to me and how it hurts me. I want you to realize this morning that that's not a biblical thought. That's not true. The worst consequence for your sin is the fact that you have rebelled against an infinitely holy God of the universe. That's what David realizes. That's why David says, yeah, I've missed the mark. I failed against Uriah, absolutely, Bathsheba, yeah, but ultimately it is about you that I have sinned. It is you that I've transgressed. It's you that I've rebelled against. We've got to see that. Our ultimate problem and consequence of sin is that we are separated from the Lord God Almighty, the only one that can bring hope and salvation and peace for our souls. We have to grasp this truth. David is praying this prayer of repentance, reminding himself of this, reminding himself of this so that his heart is bent the right direction towards God. Now, some of you here might be sitting here thinking sin and repentance. Man, this is I haven't been in church in years and I came back this Sunday and this is what we're talking about. This is the reason why I left the church. Because I've got all this like guilt and shame, and now you're going to talk about repentance and confession. Gosh, like I, I, I wish I wouldn't have come today. Because now I'm going to leave here feeling guilty, and I want to just propose to you, I want to plead to you that that is not a biblical perspective on your sin. It's not. There's a massive difference between seeing your sin and repenting of your sin and having remorse over your sin. There's a massive difference between the two of those. See, remorse is what the world will do to you over your sin and your mistakes. Make you feel terrible and make you feel shamed, make you feel guilty all the time with no semblance of hope, none. But God, when we come to him and we repent of our sins and we turn from our sins, we find hope and life and peace. There's a massive difference between repentance and remorse, and I'm begging with you to choose repentance today. You see, you might be still struggling and saying, Ryan, is that right? Like, are you sure? Well, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. I would strongly encourage you, memorize this passage, hide it in your heart or write it so you see it, whether it's a, you're getting ready in the morning or you're driving in your car. But this is going to talk about the difference between Repentance and remorse: Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10. "For Godly grief, Godly grief, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret." Did you hear that? Godly grief, this is sorrow over your sin, produces repentance, where you turn from that sin and you find life that leads to salvation without regret. God wants to offer you a life without regret. You want to know what the world wants to offer you? Look at the second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For many of you, you've come to church and you've only felt the shame and the guilt. And you sit there and you think on those things and all you get is the death in your life. That's all you get. That is remorse. That is not repentance. It's not God's word is extending an invitation to exchange your godly sorrow for salvation or freedom to live a life without regret. This is what God is offering us today. So may we pray prayers of repentance and not remorse. And if you're still not clear on what that is, if David was praying a, a prayer here of remorse... It would be extremely self-centered, and it would be about all of his mistakes. Never looking to the Lord, only compiling the guilt that he has on himself. It would sound something like this if David was praying a prayer of remorse. I was such an idiot. I was a fool. I failed my trusted man, Uriah. Man, how, how, how could I have ever done this? I was, what kind of idiot am I? I mean, this is going to get out. People are going to judge me as a king, and it's going to undermine the kingdom. All this bad stuff is going to happen to the kingdom. Man, how could I have done this? What a mess I have made. And it ends there. That's what a remorseful prayer looks like. And many of us, that's what we do. But here's the problem. What remorseful prayers are, are just an aggravated form of self-pity where you just feel sorry for yourself. Which if you slow down and think about it, that selfishness and self-centeredness, which is the very thing that got you to the place that you committed these sins and these transgressions and this iniquity. It just is. And so, if you sit in your remorse, I, I would say exchange that for repentance. Exchange it for repentance. You see, there's a massive difference between the two of these because If you only feel remorse, what it'll do is it'll pull you away from God, not towards God. Repentance will draw you deep into the heart of God. Remorse will turn you away from God. Because you'll feel bad about yourself and you're like, well, you know what? Gosh, I do feel bad about that sin. Well, maybe if I just get away from the church, then I won't have to think about it. Or better yet, maybe there's not a God. And if there's not a God, then I get to choose what's right and wrong. And I'm going to say, this isn't wrong. And we try to justify ourselves. That's not solving the problem. That's not removing the iniquity that's within our hearts. It's not. We're just making up excuses. Instead, we need to come with a repentant heart. You see, remorse will only make you hate yourself more, but repentance will make you hate your sin more and love your Savior. Vast different. Vast different. And you you and I have to understand the importance of repentance and praying repentant prayers to the Lord it's the first step to receiving the good news of the gospel if we don't repent then we'll never get the good news of Jesus John the Baptist when you get to the New Testament this guy that was a great speaker people were coming outside of the city to listen to him preaching the wilderness like people in our time we go into the city and then we we get the crowds together Crowds were leaving the city, going out to the middle of nowhere, just to listen to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is said to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, to prepare the way for Jesus. And his message that he's preaching is repent. Repent. Turn from your sins. Repentance isn't a 360 where I just like, oh, I feel bad about that, and I turn all the way around and now I'm going back at my sin again. No, repentance is a complete turning, a 180 from here to here. I'm going a whole different direction. And that's what John is telling them to do. And then Jesus comes on the scene, the Messiah, the one who would make repentance possible and forgiveness available to us. And the very first thing he preaches in the gospel of Mark is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is saying repent of your sins. Turn from them. And then you get to the book of Acts and there's this uh, disciple of Jesus named Peter. And he preaches this message talking about the the, the gospel and the good news of the Messiah who has come in order to to give us refreshment in life instead of death. And the people hear it and they're like, okay, that sounds awesome. We want that. What What do we need to do to be saved? They ask Peter this. What do we need to do to be saved? And Peter's first words are, repent. Repent. We've got to grasp and understand our sin our transgression, our iniquity, not so we feel worse about ourselves, but that we can feel convicted and we turn and we find hope in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Now, for David, and even for us, what is the hope that we know that we can come and be honest before God and lay out all of our our wrongs, all of our rebellions? What is the hope that when we do that we will be forgiven? this is the good news. How do we know if we pray that prayer that God will hear us and forgive us of those sins? And this is where David's prayer turns to a prayer of praise for forgiveness. Well, Psalm 51 absolutely is a prayer of repentance because of sin, but it's also a prayer of praise because of forgiveness. Look back at, at verse 1 and verse 2 with me. So, I told you, David used three words to talk about his sin, right? Do you underline those words? Do you circle those words in the text? David is also going to use three words to talk about God's goodness to us, to talk about how God extends to us salvation. In verse one, it says, Have mercy on me, O God. Your Bible might translate that gracious, or a little note that you look at the bottom of your Bible it says, or be gracious to me. It's the first word that God will give grace. The second word He's going to use is steadfast love. In verse one, that's what He says: "Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love." That's a, it's a different term, but still talking about God's grace that He extends to us. And then He uses a third term: "According to Your abundant mercy." This is where his hope rests, that God, when he hears his sins, would forgive David and will forgive us. Because God is a gracious God. This is the God that we pray to. God is a loving God. God has abundant mercy. You see, this word for mercy in verse 1, or grace, God be gracious to me, this is giving us what we do not deserve. David knows that he deserves death for what he's done. I mean, if you read the Old Testament law, The sin of of, of adultery, the sin of murder, the the consequence for that is murder. There's no even like, this is how you are forgiven of these sins. If you read it, death is due to you. And David's like, this is what is due to me. Death is due to me. So God, would you be gracious to exchange the death that I deserve for your salvation? Oh, would you please do that? Now, why? Why? Why would God do this for David? And why would he do it for you? This is a bold request. This is a bold request. He is asking God, a holy God, who he had rebelled against, to act as if he had not committed treason against him. That's what David is praying. And he's like, that's why I need your grace. And he uses two words in here, or the same words, but uses it twice in verse 1. God, I want this mercy, I want this grace in my life according to, do you see that in verse one? According to, according to what? That David is pretty high up there and he's a king? That David is a pretty good dude? Would you give me your grace because I'm a pretty good moral person? No, David says it's according to your steadfast love. Your steadfast love. This word for for steadfast love It's a hard word to translate. I talk about it often, especially when we're in the Old Testament. It's a a key word in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word hesed, which is God's covenant-keeping love, which is God saying, I've made this promise to you. I will never break it. I'll never break it. And what David is pleading here is, God, would you give your grace to me according to your promises of the past? according to your promises of the past. You had promised Adam and Eve that there would be one that would come that would crush the head of the serpent who caused all of this sin. Right? We need that one. Oh, would you fulfill that that promise that you made? Oh, you promised that you would atone for our sin and remove our sin as far as east is from the west? Oh God, would you keep that covenant promise? Would you please forgive me? That's what he's pleading for. That's what he's asking for. And if that wasn't enough, he's going to say it again, the end of verse 1, according to. Well, now is a good time for him to add in his moral standard. Give me grace according to your love and then according to all my good works. But that's not what he says. He hits it a third time, according to your abundant mercy. Your abundant mercy. This is the gentleness and kindness of God to extend mercy, compassion, goodness to those who have warred against him. And this is what he's asking, and I am so thankful that it says abundant mercy. God has abundant mercy. His mercy is more than enough. That's why we sang that song, though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Amen. God's mercy is not just a little thimble, and he can only pour a thimble into your life, and that's it. No, he has abundant mercy, and David knows that, and he's like, as I pray and I confess all my sins, God, I'm coming back to your mercy I need your abundant mercy that never runs out. That's what I need. And that's what he's pleading before the Lord. And as he points to God's love and his grace and his mercy, then out of this, he's even going to ask for more than just forgiveness. And the the rest of this, he's going to ask for three things. He's going to ask that God would cleanse him, that God would create in him, and that God would restore in him. Look at verse 1. This is the cleansing he says, God, would you blot out all my transgressions and iniquities? And we see the iniquities in verse 9. Blot out all of my iniquities. Same term, blot out. Verse 1 is transgressions. Verse 9 is iniquity. He's like, I need all of that removed. Now, it's fascinating. That word for blot out is a, is a term that would basically, for those that grew up in the 90s, would be like out on paper, okay? So they would have parchment or scrolls. They didn't have a lot of paper at that time. So if you wrote in your journal and you're like, man, that was from two years ago, I want to get rid of that, you would blot out with this sponge and, and certain different materials, you blot out all that's been written on that page, it would be a clean slate. And that's what David is asking. God, if you look at the parchment of my life, the scroll of my life, what you're going to see is my transgressions, the things that I have done wrong willingly and know that I've done wrong. God, you're going to see the iniquity in my heart to always be tempted to do the wrong thing. Oh, God, I need you to, to blot those out, to wipe that out, to make it as it had never happened. God, would you blot out all of my sin and transgression? And this is what he's praying for. This is what he's asking for. But he doesn't just want a, a clean slate. He realizes he needs a new heart doesn't just need a clean slate. He needs a new heart. Would you create in me a new heart, verse 10 says. This is important for us to understand, because if you only pray the first part of this, God cleanse me, blot out my transgressions, then maybe where your mind is, I just need a second chance. God, if you'll give me a second chance, then I'll try harder. Then I'll work harder. Then I'll be better. So just give me a clean slate, and I'm good. And David's like, no, If you give me a clean slate, oh God, I'll ruin that slate. I'll mess that up. I need you not just to wipe the slate clean, but to give me a new heart. And understand, there's a a difference between what a Christian does when they confess their sin and they get a clean slate and a clean heart, versus a religious person who will just say, give me a clean slate. I'll try harder. I'll do better. I won't mess up again. See... The believer knows the depths of his sin. And the only way that he can be freed from the depths of his sin is for God Almighty, the one who is gracious, loving, and merciful, to give him a new heart, to create in him a new heart. And that word for create is the same word that's used all the way back in Genesis when God created everything. When he created the sun and the moon and the light and the, the night, the when he created the land and the sea, it's the exact same word that God creates. And David's like, just like you did at the very beginning of time, I need you to do now in my heart all that you would create in me, a pure heart, a clean heart, a right spirit. And we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that is through Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is the good news. This is the hope. This is how we know that we'll be forgiven, not because of what we have done, but because of who God is, and he has made that way through Jesus Christ, and all that would come to him and repent, not just feel remorse, repent and confess those sins, can and will be forgiven, and then God will give him a new heart in Christ Jesus. But wait, there's more, right? There's still good things. You find that God also restores joy. He doesn't just cleanse. He doesn't just create in us a new heart. He restores joy in our hearts. Look at verse 12. David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, carefully notice that David is not praying that God would restore his salvation as if he had lost it and needed God to give it back to him again. That's not what it says. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because he knows the same thing that you and I know. When we give in to our sin and our transgression and our iniquities that a lot of times we lose the joy that we have in the Lord. Those things shrivel up our souls and so we don't have joy before the Lord. And David, as he confesses all of these things, before all these wickedness before the Lord, he's like, God, and would you come back and create that joy in my heart again? Would you create that joy in my heart of how you've saved me, how you've redeemed me, how you've rescued me, how you pulled me out of that dark pit? Would you give me joy in that again? Because right now, I don't have it. I don't have it. But as God gives us that joy, as He restores the joy to our hearts, it's going to cause us to do at least two things, two applications that we find in the rest of this passage. First, it's going to lead us to evangelize, it's going to lead us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. See, forgiven people extend forgiveness and point them to the one who forgives. This is what we do. And it says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David's like, as you forgive me, as you cleanse me, as you blot out my iniquity and my transgression, and you give me joy again, then that joy is going to pour out of my mouth as I tell others who have transgressed against you that God can forgive. Well, I did it on purpose. Yeah, but God can forgive. He can. Sinners, those who have missed the mark, he's going to plead and tell them of this great and merciful God who has steadfast love and grace extended to them. He's going to tell them that. We too should share this good news of Jesus Christ with others. But oftentimes when we sit in the seat that David sits in, where we're praying and we're confessing our sins, we feel like this keeps us from sharing the good news with others. Some of us have transgressed the Lord this weekend. and You're going to have an opportunity to tell somebody about the goodness of Jesus tomorrow. And what's going to be in your heart is, I can't, I can't tell them about Jesus. Like, man, what I did this weekend, man, the sin that, that I committed, the transgressions that I have, like, I am not worthy enough to tell them about Jesus. And that's exactly what the evil woman would want you to think. That's it. That you would have remorse instead of Repentance but the one who has confessed their sin and has repented of their sins, then there's a joy that comes up in their heart. And they're like, okay, I've messed up. You've messed up. But there's forgiveness for both of us. You see, this, this church, this this is not a gathering together where we come together and we talk about how great we are, how self-righteous we are. We've, we've done really well this week, and so glad that you're here. All the self-righteous people gathered together. No, we are sinners in here that sing to God because we know the depths of our sin. We know our weaknesses. We know our wrongs. That's why the song we sang earlier, God, our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more, because we realize our sins are many. So, this is not a perfect place, but we do have a perfect God who, in his grace and his mercy and his love, extends to us the good news so that we can share this good news with others. But we don't just share it with others, we'll also declare praise to God. This is the second application. We won't just evangelize, we'll praise the Lord with our mouths. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says at the end of verse 14, my tongue is going to sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now once again, that's the reason when we go to confession and repentance, that's the reason why some of us do not sing to the Lord in here. We're like, okay, I know I gotta go to church and I know we're hearing these songs, but I can't open my mouth because of all my transgressions and my sins and my iniquity. So I'm gonna sit here and listen to other people sing. David's like, no. I know my sin. I know the depths of my sin, but I know the greatness of my Savior. And so it's gonna make me sing, it's gonna make me praise the Lord. I can't keep it in because of the forgiveness that I have through Jesus. This is the good news, the gospel. All oh, that we would share it with others. That we would declare God's greatness with our lips. And church family, as we kind of come to the close of our time, we're going to do this very thing. All three of these things that we find in Psalm 51, this is what we're going to do today. As we close, we're going to confess. We're going to take time to repent of our sins before the Lord. And so, we're going to give you a, a little bit of time where I'll pray and start us off. And then it's just going to be silence. And you come before the Lord, whether it's a missing of the mark or a transgression, you pour that out and pray to the Lord. And then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper on the heels of that. Why? Because the New Testament tells us that the Lord's Supper is actually a proclamation to unbelievers of what we believe has forgiven us. It's according to His grace and His mercy that we are forgiven. And so what we're going to do after that is we're going, to, we're going to take this in remembrance, declaring that God has taken our transgressions as he gave his life on the cross and shed his blood for us. And then after that, we're going to do where Psalm 51 ends. We're going to declare the praise of God. We're going to sing aloud to our Savior. So let's do each one of those three things. I'm going to start us now with prayer of confession and then give you a time to pray as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we now know what it cost you to answer this prayer of Psalm 51. Ye- Jesus, you went to the cross for our sins so that our transgressions and our iniquity could be blotted out. Your blood was shed so that we could be washed as white as snow. So, Lord, we remember that cost And at the same time, we know it's because of that, because of your grace, your steadfast love, and your mercy, that whatever sins we confess before you now, we have hope that it can be forgiven. And so, Lord, would you hear our prayers to you now and forgive us of our sins? Pray to him now.